0: Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started.
1: everybody's Bob again I've got driving demand transforming B2B marketing to meet the needs of the modern buyer and I've got Carlos Hidalgo with me today Carlos thanks for coming on the show
0: Bob thanks for having me pleasure to be here
1: okay Cool book, love the cover. Let's talk a little bit about transforming B2B marketing to meet the needs of the modern buyer because to me, when I say B2B, that's business to business. Are you talking about a modern buyer as a business to business relationship or that business to businesses uh, aren't or business to business marketing communication aren't addressing what the consumer is looking for?
0: I would say both. I think when we talk about the modern buyer, we think about how B2B organizations are buying today with groups of people forming a buying committee. We see stats from the likes of CEB and Forrester and ITSMA who are saying the buyer is waiting an exceedingly long amount of time before they engage with any kind of sales interaction. And partly because there's so much access to information today, more so than there was 10, 15 years ago, it's all in the palm of our hands. And I think when we see the transformation. The B2B buyer or the buyers, I should say, have transformed what I've seen in throughout my career and even present day is very few organizations are keeping pace with that change. So there needs to be some wholesale change that needs to happen in B2B organizations to match the level of sophistication and complexity that their B2B buyers have forced upon them.
1: Now, do you think that's because you know traditionally you talk about like the sales cycle, and you do like an advertising campaign, and then you've got the follow up, and then eventually you build a you build up a relationship with a new client, and then you know, uh, two months or six months or a year and a half in, in some huge sales cycles, um, you get a buy. Is that fundamentally changing now because the consumer and the the B two B relationship has changed? because they're doing a ton of research and they really know what they want. There's so much information out there and then they're going to you and then the sales cycle becomes very, very short. They say, have we made our decision? This is the unit we like. This is the color that's gonna work for us. Here's the quantity that works for us. Give us a great price.
0: Yeah, I think there is some of that. Um, I think there is the other complexity that we're seeing is, as I mentioned, we're really in this age of consensus buying, where it's very rarely in the B2B purchase cycle is there one buyer that is driving, you know, setting off driving and making the decision. There's usually anywhere from three up to five, sometimes seven unique, individual buyers that are part of this committee. And so this idea that all of them are looking at this purchase in a different manner. If you, for instance, take somebody in finance, somebody in sales, somebody in IT who are part of this buying committee, those are three very distinct, different viewpoints. And so all of them are looking at it differently. CEB has done some research that shows within the first, I think it's 32% of that purchase process, more sometimes what you find is that purchase committee falls apart. Hard because they cannot reach a true consensus or a, a true agreement on how to move forward. So I think that's another layer of complexity that organizations, both on the marketing and the sales side, have to address.
1: Do you think traditionally that committee or, or series of, of approval gates has always existed, except it was uh, basically... When you got to the sales B2B um, situation, they'd basically elected somebody to represent them. And that person uh, basically came forward and said, you're dealing with me. You don't have to worry about all these other people.
0: Yeah, I think we still see some of that today. And I think there has been always a level of sign off. I mean, I remember back in my days in the software software world, when I sat client side, obviously, I only had signing authority to so much, and then I had to, to go up the chain. But largely, I was the one who was responsible for driving the purchases I needed to make in my marketing department. I never had to involve sales, I never had to involve IT, I just made the decisions. So I think that has, that has been what's changed. And what, what I've seen in Studies and what I've seen in some of the authorship off of those studies is, by and large, people are less and less risk averse. So they are, and Ceb wrote about this right in their uh, in their latest publication where they talk about yeah, it's really this feeling of, is my job on the line? Am I willing to risk my career to make some of these decisions? More and more people are not. So I think we're seeing more of that consensus where the sign-off chain has always occurred. I think what we're really seeing now is I want a seat at the table to help form, shape, and guide the decisions that are made leading up to this purchase, not just having a sign-off authority.
1: One of the problems with that too is, you know, you you just don't have uh, somebody that is the de facto leader you you have a lot of a uh, lot of people discussing stuff you go into committee mode and i know from lots of experience that committees is an amazing way to waste a whole pile of time um so do you think that is a fundamental problem too that we're, we're getting too many decisions made you mentioned earlier that some people just give up because they can't get what they need is this a bad thing or is it a good thing
0: um, you know what? So first of all, I agree with you that there, we are in the the committee mode. Um, I'm not a huge fan of committees, but I think whether it's good or bad, it's the reality of the situation. And it's what marketers have to understand that we have to message. So because sales is being pushed down further in the buying cycle, marketing now has to fill that gap. And how we fill that gap is by having re- relevant dialogue With each of those committee members at an individual and then also at a corporate level. So again, we may not like it, but it's the reality of the situation and we have to respond to it appropriately.
1: Do you think it's more fiscally responsible to be committee-driven, and that's what's basically causing uh, the the rise of the committee, uh, for use of a better word, that uh, they're saying, well, it's all accountability, you guys have got to watch your numbers, blah, 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 and they're kind of teaming up together to, to, to be safe, uh, cover their ass, but also to be able to prove that, look, we, we talked about this forever and ever, and now we've made a decision we have to move forward, please release the funds.
0: Yeah, I think I think there's a there's a sense of fiscal responsibility in there. I mean, I, I think about our own sales cycle here at Annuitys, and there's very very few times when I engage in a discussion when somebody doesn't say to me, uh, "Hey, can you help us design a business case because we've got to go and and while the budget has been approved, we actually got to secure the final funding for this and get the permission to spend the budget in this way." So I think there has been a lot of scrutiny around what are we spending our money on in some cases? Um, And so I think that's a huge driver of it. I also think, you know, Bob, as you just mentioned, it's that CYA. I don't want to put my neck out there and make the wrong decision. I want to make sure that if this thing goes, uh, you know, goes belly up, that at the end of the day, I can say, hey, look, we as a committee did this and I'm not the one standing alone, raising my hand saying I was responsible for this decision that failed.
1: You think it's going to be... uh... The death of the connection in, in, in the sense that there's always one guy that's got a million connections. Oh, oh, I can talk to this guy. Hey, don't worry. I can get this to happen. I'm just going to talk to so-and-so who's the president of the company. Do you think that that ability to do business uh, is becoming harder and harder or that type of person has less value?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's becoming harder, but I don't think we—I don't see a death to relationship. At the end of the day, I believe humans are humans, and no matter how automated, uh, you know, how digital we we become, at the end of the day, we want to do business. Even in a B two B world, we want to do business with organizations that we trust. We want to do business with organizations that we like and that we know gets us. I think that puts a spotlight on the need for relevant one-to-one content that I believe is is fundamentally missing today in the whole world of demand generation. So I I do think we will still see, hey, I know a guy who knows a guy, or I have a personal relationship with the CEO, so we can do this. Um, But I can even tell you, I've been in situations where there has been that personal relationship. And while that kind of cracks the door open and may grease the skids a little bit, it, it still goes back to the committee to make sure that that buying process is followed from a buying perspective and that they get what they want ultimately to serve their needs.
1: Um, you mentioned earlier CYA. I, I, I just want to go back to that to, to, because acronyms are, are classically confusing for people, especially if they're not specialists in this field. So let's define CYA.
0: Cya in the B two B world is just cover your ass. <laughs> it's uh, I mean, really, you know, you had mentioned it. Is yes, yeah. I don't want to stick my neck out there. So no, good, good catch on that one.
1: Let's talk a little bit about why you feel this book is important to come out right now. You know, obviously you've got tons of experience. You're doing this day to day, and you must have realized, like, gosh, you know what? This would be an amazing asset for other people. But really, what triggered that?
0: Yeah, I think what triggered it was. As, as I've worked over the last 10 and a, ten and a half years here at, at Annuitus when we founded the company, and as we've grown, um, and even going back to my days at, at two of the other software companies that I, I ran marketing for our departments, what I started to see is year over year, the changes that have made, the, the advancements that have been made, have been so incremental. And what we've done in response to our buyer, when I say we, I'm talking about more from a B2B marketing and sales perspective, is we've not made wholesale change we've tried to create different departments align different strategies adopt new technologies and we take this very siloed approach to what we're doing to try to drive change and about three years ago I really started to say you know we really need CMOs need to understand and VPs of marketing need to understand that there has to be a change management initiative to make sure we are, we are changing people, process, content, technology, and data to align to the buyer. And if you don't have that change management thought in your head then you're just going to continue to kind of limp along in an incremental fashion. So that's really what the, what the, how the book was inspired is to say, not only do I want to write about and, and get people to understand change management, but I also don't want to just say, here's what you should do. I kind of want to follow up with the how they should do it. And so that's really what for me was the drive of the book. It came from more so client and prospect interaction of people saying, We know we should be doing these things, but how do we do it? How do we get started? And what exactly do we need to do to really make sure we're advancing the cause of B2B marketing and not just limping along year after year?
1: I think also another major problem these days is people are are incredibly busy and to be able to go to them and, and suggest a solution. Many times you get pushback because they just don't want to deal with the learning curve for that particular solution because they just can't see uh, the forest for the trees. Do you think that that is still a fundamental problem with with, um, not coercing but basically trying to get people to understand you really need this software or you really need this product because if you don't, you're going to be dead in the water.
0: Yeah, I do. I I run into more marketers who say, hey, we know what we're doing is not optimal and we know we could be doing a lot better, but we really don't have the time to change or or to to make the changes needed. And honestly, that that answer, you know, just to be (laughs) to be blunt, kind of makes me bristle is (laughs) because what I hear is, hey, we know what we're doing is mediocrity, but we're okay with mediocrity. And so that's why in the book, we talk about select an area of the business where you can pilot, kind of prototype this new approach, this new demand process, and really make sure that it's going to work. Then you bring that to the business and say, why would we not make this wholesale change across the company, solution area by solution area or audience segment by audience segment and start to ramp up? So because this is a change management initiative, I think what I hear a lot of marketers say is, We've got to get this stuff done in 90 days. Well, change, especially when you start to change a culture at the people level, and then move that through process, and then move that through how that informs your data and how, it engage, how you engage your customer we're looking at about a two and a half to three and a half year initiative. The beauty in all of that though, is when you start small, you get to look at all the milestones along the way and you start to see that change starts to gain momentum. When I hear people say, I don't have time for this. Again, I think what you're saying is we're going to accept mediocrity.
1: Yeah. And, and I think um, the average person that's, that's in an office environment, they're coming in and they're, they're on a they're not on a marathon anymore for their career. They're on a sprint to try and make it to uh, next quarter or sometimes uh, next week because their job's on the line. And there's, there's a lot of this uh, uncertainty going on with, with companies. You know, Back in the day, you joined a company and you got 30, 40 years to figure it out. Uh, now it's like you hit the ground running or you're out the door.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a that's a, a leadership issue, I really do. I think there is and again, don't don't hear me wrong. I don't think we sit there and say, okay, well, marketing, you get the opportunity to shut the lights off and then come up, come back up three years later. There has to be some incremental improvement as we're building the longer-term strategy. But this idea of, hey, you've got to impact pipeline in the next 30 days, especially when I have a six-month sales cycle, it's just not realistic. And I think leaders, CMOs, CEOs, CFOs, need to stand up and say, hey, the landscape has changed, the market has changed, our buyers have changed, we didn't get dysfunctional overnight. What makes you think we're going to fix it overnight? And so let's put a plan in place that gives us a longer term fix while getting some short term wins. If you can't approach that, then I think, you know, from a leadership perspective, you're not going to find the people who can actually move the needle and drive significant revenue from, a, from marketing investment. Uh, you just won't find them because they, you're not going to give them a chance to really succeed.
1: Yeah, and, and you, you're going to end up of, uh, with a culture of, of people that are just going to fake it and, and uh, tweak the numbers so they survive and you're going to be in an unreality business and suddenly the, the bottom's going to fall out and you're going to, what, what the heck happened?
0: No, you're exactly right, and I think you just touched on something that's huge, and that's what I write about a lot is this whole culture is giving, changing the culture where people are not scared for their jobs. They're not running around saying, I've got to produce, I've got to get something done. This is what we see every every year when we say, we're going to invest in more content, but yet the numbers of we get to prove the value of our content continue to drop. It's because people are running around just doing more and more and more and more. But where are the results? If I'm a CEO, I want to see results. When I, I always ask our marketing team and our, our our account management team, what are the results in what we're spending? If you can't show me these results, now we have a problem because I don't want to continue to invest in something that doesn't produce results.
1: Well, and also these days um... – Monitoring and actually showing results is way more cost effective if you have the tools in place. It's relatively simple. I'm not saying it's ever simple, Uh, but really results. Everything is we're in a world of A-B testing more than anything else. and, And long gone is the day of shooting from the hip and see what happens.
0: Yeah, and I think we've got to take it a long long way beyond A-B testing. A-B testing is great, but we've also got to look at the back end and say, how are we continually optimizing what we're doing from a demand generation program perspective? So that means, are we looking at the conversion rates and are we benchmarking them against industry standards? And are we making the changes in the program to make sure that those conversion rates go up? Are we monitoring and looking at channel performance? Are we monitoring and looking at our content performance? Those are the things that I believe are missing in today's modern demand generation organizations, where they're saying, all right, we launched this program. We spent $10,000 on it. We got $20,000 back in sales. There's our ROI. Go on to the next. We really should be looking to design perpetual programs and then put a business intelligence and an analytical lens on that so we can continually optimize to drive higher conversions, drive more pipeline, drive more revenue and and drive higher performance from the overall investment.
1: Well, and and that strategy is is a classic mature uh, market approach. I mean in in the day, you know, you would you would develop a widget and you would be out there manufacturing or, or whatever and Basically, the company would get to a certain point where they realized that, okay, this is as much money as we can make profit-wise this way. Let's start uh, tweaking and seeing if we can refine. Can we do it with less people? Can we do it with new machinery? Can we do it by uh, a better distribution system? All those type of things would happen years and years and years after you actually started the company when you were mature enough to actually be able to do that because analytics were incredibly difficult to come by. These days... It's too easy to come by those analytics. So really, you have to have this mature company approach where you may have launched something uh, a month or six months or a year ago, but you're looking at it really like you would look at something uh, back in the 50s and 60s that was like 5, 10, 15 years old.
0: You're you're absolutely right, and, and I think the tools are there. I think the opportunity is there. It's really up to us to do it as as B2B marketers. And so, I think you know what you just described is what my business partner Adam Needles talks about a lot. Is this whole idea of supply chain, and that's how we have to start to approach demand generation. It is the supply chain concept where we might have built something. We might even be putting a process in place by which to build this. But if we're not continually taking a look at that process and taking a look how we're building it and what the results are and fine-tuning it to drive better results, well, then we're back into a very tactical approach where we launch something, we measure it once, we report that to the business, and then we go off to the next thing. That's just not where we are today. That's not where we need to be, and that's certainly not a buyer-centric approach to demand gen.
1: Alright, well let's talk about tactics, the tactic of how the heck to get into this book and read the book. Do you think it's a book, uh, and this is a question I'm asking more and more, uh, because everybody's too busy and they don't want to give up uh, a, like three hours to a book to figure out if it's a book for them. But for a person person that, that's crunched for time, they get your book, what is the first chapter to read? after they've kind of read the beginning of the book? Because I ask this question that everybody says, well, you should read the first chapter. So that's a given. But after they kind of get that part, where can they skip to? Or is it kind of a book that you have to read from the beginning all the way through to the end?
0: Well, I would hope that somebody would read it from beginning to end, but I really, <laughs> think, I really think it's about the culture. If you can't instill and drive a culture of change in your organization, no matter what tactic you do, no matter what, um, approach you take, no matter what try to new process you try to put in place, it's going to fail. And I know this because I've seen it. I've seen it in organizations that we have tried to work with. I've seen it in organizations where we've worked with where eventually this stuff, it's not easy. And they start to question, they start to wonder, they start to doubt. And the problem is the leadership in the organization never drove this whole idea of Change management and cultural change. So I would say, you know, get to the introduction where we kind of tee up the whole idea of the book. You can walk through why transformation does fail and then go to that idea of culture. And I do give some tips in there of some past experiences of Just some real simple ways you can start to change the culture and get people to rally around and also identify the type of people that may try to sabotage that culture either unwittingly or very purposefully.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You're really what he's talking about is chapter ten, uh, creating an outcome accountable culture. But what happens quite interestingly? Then you go into the next chapter is managing people through change. That makes sense. Okay, we need to make change. Oh, and here's how to do the change. But then you kind of go into the need for change, and then the next chapter, change ahead. And it almost seems like the need for change and the change ahead. That could. That's something you should look up understand before you approach the culture angle.
0: Yeah, and 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 that's a point well taken, Bob. The reason I, I structured it that way is almost every marketer, B2B marketer and salesperson I speak to understands fundamentally that the world is drastically different than the world 15 years ago from a B2B marketing and sales and buying perspective. So I didn't really feel the need to try to highlight, hey guys here's how this that we live in this brand new world. I kind of wanted to just say that to the end as a reminder to say, hey, all these discussions I've had all these conferences, I go to all of these people that I speak with, we all know that change is afoot. So we have a we really have one or two options. And I believe that, that, you know, this is quoted in the book, I'm not, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what chapter where Robert Rose from CMI talks about this, you either change or you die. And that seems pretty dire that seems pretty drastic and sometimes you get a roll of the eyes like okay come on let's not be so dramatic but if you look at the consumer world did any of us think 15 years ago we'd be sitting here talking about you know rest in peace blockbuster or rest in peace borders books or rest in peace circuit city these are all you know a lot of reasons for those but you know i take blockbuster for an example you want to talk about an organization that didn't change to the buyer's needs the blockbuster's gone And so I really think, you know, for me, the way that I structured that book, I wanted to put that to the end almost as just a reminder, because I do believe that most B2B marketers, at least the ones I speak to and salespeople, they understand that change is afoot. They just need to know how to adapt to it.
1: Yeah, it's a it's almost like a primer for this book is who moved the cheese. And if you haven't read that book, gosh, time to get out from under your rock and read the book. Um, (laughs) So. Let's talk a little bit about your aha moment, because this is one of my favorite questions. Uh, You know, you've been doing this a long time, but there's a big difference between doing something and then uh, researching it and then putting it into a book. And what happens usually is you have an aha moment while writing the book or multiple aha moments. So for you, what was something that crystallized when you uh, wrote the book?
0: Um, I I think for me, it was, you know, as I was writing the book, I know a lot of our authors who say, hey, I'm going to go take a couple of months, three months, go squirrel away, remove myself from the business and write this book. Um, I didn't do that. I actually was very involved with accounts. I was very involved with growing our business, being, you know, leading our executive team as I was writing the book. And so there were a lot of different aha moments where I would be in a meeting with a client. I would be talking with a prospect. um, I would be at a show where I had spoken and somebody would come up to me and share an anecdote. Or, and I even, I even referenced one in the book where a guy came up to me and said, hey, that was a great synopsis on what we should do, but I really want somebody to start talking about how we should do it. That for me was an aha moment to say, this has to be a book about how do you actually put this stuff in place? How do you go about driving change in your organization. So I can't really put my finger on a a one specific aha because I was continuing in the business as I was writing. So there were multiple aha moments that I was having that I was able to infuse in the book virtually real time because it was a day-by-day type of thing where I'd get off a call and think, ah, I probably shouldn't go back and weave that into that chapter.
1: Uh you know, that's that's fascinating because you're really you were getting feedback. It's basically what you're recommending in the book is what you did to write the book which is great.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, I can tell you it's it's not a – I wish I had had the three months to go squirrel away in a cabin in the woods, but I didn't. Um, but in hindsight, I'm kind of glad for that because it really did help inform a lot of what I was able to put into the book with real-time examples and, and, and uh, real-life examples from things that I had You know, some of those experiences were only, you know, one to two months old. They weren't 10, 15 years ago. They were virtually real time.
1: Uh, Were you seeing a a pattern? You know, you're chatting with multiple people about stuff. Were you starting to see patterns, people saying, you know, I I need to know this? Or was it more a general uh, overall need for like a complete plan instead of one particular focus?
0: Yeah, I, I think it was more of a pattern. I mean, we have a methodology by which, and that's what's really written about in the book is the methodology that we employ with our clients. But I really, I really saw a pattern of, you know, commonalities across organizations with issues with their data, issues with how do we create more relevant, more buyer-centric content, how do we align better with sales, how do we find more time, how do we drive more revenue from our marketing engagement on the demand generation side? Uh, How do we establish an organization that can really help drive demand rather than have it be the job of multiple people across the organization? These were the patterns that I started to see. And for us, our methodology kind of addresses all of that. So really, the the book was really helped. That pattern really helped drive the book and a lot of what's in the book because I think for us, and for me, I really write more towards an enterprise organization, but I also think these principles apply to a mid-market and sometimes an SMB. It's just on a smaller, less complex scale. So regardless of who I speak to, I kind of hear the same things um, You know, with, with very few outliers, and I think it's just the pain that marketing and salespeople are seeing in this B2B market.
1: Well, you know, it is an evolving uh, process, and, and I was just thinking now that we're kind of in the age of marketing as a system. You see a lot of marketing companies come out and what they're touting is like, oh, use us because we have a system and we'll plug you into the system and you're gonna see results. Compared to the back in the day where it was more, uh, well, a crapshoot. You know, oh, we're gonna spend all this money and don't worry, it'll be fine. And if it's not fine, well, no big deal for us, but too bad for you guys. But today, and we talked about this a little bit, everything has accountability absolutely everything and i think this has been driven 100 percent because of the internet and because everybody's moved onto the internet and then we have the social revolution happening where everybody's talking about everything do you think that the next phase is going to be what they've been predicting with uh internet three which is everybody sharing all the all the information all the time, and then we're gonna have to have something like um, artificial intelligence sifting through that stuff based on parameters that we're interested in. And a lot of the stuff that we're working on today is gonna become kind of irrelevant.
0: Well, I, I don't know that anytime you talk about being buyer-centric, it, it, I, I, would, I would hope to God that that never becomes irrelevant. I think it's how we do that. When I hear organizations say, hey, we have a system we can just plug you into, um, I reject that because I think every business is unique. Every buying pattern is unique. I think if you have a methodology by which you're going to prescribe, it's like a doctor. He's going to go through the same steps to diagnose, but every diagnosis is Going to, going to be different. And so you have to have a different prescription to cure the illness. When I start saying, hey, well, we're just going to plug this in, or we're going to put predictive in or things like that. I kind of bristle because what I see so many times is predictive has become the shiny new toy for marketers. Well, what are you predicting the predict- predicting against? Have you diagnosed your buyer's buying patterns uh, at a corporate and also at an individual buying member level? Do you understand all the pain points, needs, and challenges at the individual and the corporate level? Do you understand the trigger events that are pushing them into a purchase process? If you don't understand just some core fundamental things like that, how in the world are you going to make the most of predictive? So what I would rather see is organizations understand that, do the work to design that, launch that program, measure that program. Take all the intelligence out of that optimization and then bring in a predictive model to say, we have some intelligence by which we can predict against. Predictive without context just produces more data that we can't do anything with. So that's where I believe we're going. That's where I hope that we're going. And that's where I believe organizations should go rather than just say, oh my word, this whole world of predictive is awesome. Let's just set it on our database and and go crazy i we have a client right now who went for that and i met with them last year and i said how's the predictive stuff going and he kind of rolled his eyes and said we've spent a whole lot of money and we're on our fourth try and he said honestly we have not really done the work the upfront work necessary to maximize our investment in predictive we should have waited
1: hmm. well that leads really quite nicely into my next question which is uh, from chapter 7 adapting the lead management process and many many organizations that I've chatted with their their sales managers um is that, yeah, the, the, the marketing's work great, but we're just not following up on leads fast enough or by the time we get to a lead, they've moved on. The concept of a lead being something that you can hang and wait and, ah, we'll get to it, we'll get to it, is, is becoming shorter and shorter. And these days, it's almost gone down to like, by the hour, if you're not responding within an hour or a day or four or five days, you've lost that person because they've moved on.
0: Yeah, I think what we have to understand is that first and foremost, demand generation is a marketing end to sales activity. So that's, we have to reframe the definition. This isn't just something that marketing should do. I also think marketing bears some of the responsibility for that Um, We're sales ignoring leads, because by and large, um, if you look at the statistics that have been put out there that says less than 1% of marketing generated leads ever get converted to sales. Well, I'm a high paid salesperson with a bogey every 90 days. I'm not going to sit there and mess around with names, I went highly qualified leads. That's why we highlight the importance of a buyer-centric approach and understanding the dialogue, the conversation, and the content that's going to spur that dialogue underpinned by that whole lead management and qualification so that when I do send a lead to sales, it's highly qualified, it has a lot of substance to it, and it gives sales the information on how that person became that qualified lead. If I can start to deliver that to sales, you start to see some change. Secondarily, for a salesperson, if you aren't following up on the leads and people are kind of scratching their head and going, "I, I don't understand this, the way you motivate salespeople and quite honestly, the way you motivate a lot of people is you change their comp plan. And so if you start putting some meat behind these SLAs, these service level agreements, and making sure that both marketing and sales have agreed to them, you will start to see some change in the organization. But I think first and foremost, marketing and sales have to determine what do we mean when we say qualified lead? And then what information do we want behind that? That's the first step is really understanding what that definition is.
1: You know it, it reminds me a lot of the new well, the, the rise of, of one-on-one marketing compared to shotgun marketing where you blast out a lot of stuff it, it's way more refined. You're trying to uh, put people within a community and then move that person into a community that you're monitoring and feeding with information and, and, and stuff like that. How critical is it to have that style component?
0: I I think it's really critical, and it can be done. Uh, What I often hear is, "Yeah, but that's really hard," Um, you know. And and I kind of harken back to—I would have loved to have said that to my basketball or baseball coach in high school and see what they would have said. It's not—it's not simple, I'll tell you that. But again, when we go back to the idea that we live in this buying committee era. We have to create content that speaks to them as individuals, where they are, where they're, what problems are they trying to solve? If we just use and create one piece of content and say this is going to apply to five different stakeholders or personas that are involved in the buying decision, we are going to miss the mark more often than not. And so I think we have to develop one-on-one. We can produce dynamic content that speaks to buyers based on their behavior. We can populate that on our website. We can populate that on a lot of different inbound channels and outbound channels. The, the, the truth is, I think we're spending too much time working on stuff that really doesn't matter because that's what we've always done as marketers. And so that's what's comfortable. We have to start to move out of our comfort zone and do some things that feel a little different because our buyers are dictating that we do so.
1: Well, and, and traditionally, you know, with every department or, or, or organization or, or even single individual in an organization, they are very happy with the status quo. They come in on Monday. They know that if they do X, they're going to be fine, and then Tuesday, did that, and then Friday runs around, they can go and relax. Uh, finding employees, empowering employees, giving them the ability to move forward at the speed that they may need to move forward, uh, and then rewarding those people is a fantastic strategy, but what happens to the people that don't work that way, that they're hardwired slightly different? In a marketing department or, or any department, do you feel that uh, the, the the different personality traits aren't being addressed kind of the way we're not addressing uh, individuals in our marketplace and understanding. well, look, we have quick decision makers, we have researchers, we have this, we have that.
0: Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing, and, and you're getting back to the cultural, uh, cultural aspect. Now, obviously, it'd be in some respects, and I'll highlight some respects, it'd be great if you could have everybody get motivated by the same thing. But I think part of changing culture is you have to realize what does motivate your people. Some people are truly motivated solely by money. Some people are motivated by recognition and reward. Some people are motivated by just being part of a team. So I think the key is whatever your motivation and we have this mantra here at our company at Annuitous is wherever you are, we just want you to lead. So if you're going to lead, if you're going to be just part of that committee, part of that team that constructs the new way to, to be uh, part of demand generation, lead in that role. If you're going to be the person who is going to be striving for the revenue, the pipeline, so you can get a little extra bump, lead where you are. If you're going to be the person who gets really motivated by reward and recognition and call out, lead where you are, whatever that role, lead where you are. If you have a bunch of leaders, regardless of how they are uh, motivated, and that's the true leadership, the CMO's role to say, I've got to recognize this and, and reward and call people out based on their core motivations. If everybody's leading though, based on how they're motivated and the roles that they are, you're gonna win. And so I do think it's incumbent upon leaders to say, I have a mix of people and how are they all motivated? What really pushes their buttons? At the end of the day though, let's be honest, you're going to have people who dig their heels in and do not want to make these changes. One of two things is going to happen. It's either they're gonna opt out or you need to help them opt out. And that's something that nobody wants to talk about, but it's reality. And you can't sacrifice the greater good of the organization and the greater good of your buyers for somebody who just does not want to make the turn and does not want to lead where they are and change along with the marketplace and the buyer and the organization. That person, you know, again, either opts out or you'll have to help them opt out.
1: Yeah, you know, that's that's very interesting, actually, because I was talking with somebody the other day about that same strategy where he came in at a department, he was the, you know, the new manager, so everybody fobbed off all the idiots, and he was just stuck with a bunch of people that didn't know what they were doing or weren't motivated or just had bad work ethic, and he spent six months talking with those people and basically saying, you know what, Uh, just talk with the boss, and uh, you're never going to make more money than you're making right now because you've hit a ceiling, and I just don't see you in a position beyond this. So, if that's not part of your career plan let's work together and we'll see if we can find a company to move you into and so he didn't just fire people he just transitioned them into a different company where they were happier and it's a win-win because they're happier and they owe him and he's happy because he can bring in somebody that he needs
0: well and at the end of the day we we are and and again this is something i always tell our team we're in the people business and the people that i'm referring to are our people we have 20 six people in our organization, all key team members, and if I can make sure that our people are motivated, they feel inspired, they feel like they're able to do their jobs, they're able to be successful, um, and they, they feel like the leadership is being authentic in communication, they're going to carry that on to my clients. So I don't know who that individual is, but I laud him for his leadership and also for his patience, because it would have really been easy to swing an axe and say, you're done, you're done, you're done, you're done. At the end of the day, he was honest and authentic with those people in his communication. And even if he didn't know that this was going to be an outcome, you know how it is. People to understand what's happening in that department and if they start to see wow this is a guy who really cares about his people even if they weren't the right fit rather than just swing the axe he's helping transition them somewhere else he's already building a culture in that organization of trust of authenticity and of, of uh, value to people that if I'm in that organization I go hey he's a guy I kind of think I, I think I could work for and if I'm not motivated by moving up the ranks if I'm not motivated by money I may be somebody who says, hey, I'm okay with this as a career path. I'm just going to lead where I am. I I, I applaud them for it.
1: What can you tell us for uh, all all our listening audience they can do today to move forward for a a more of a driving demand uh, approach to their business?
0: Yeah, I think you I think people should take a step back as best they can with as crazy as as our our work days are and really say, what are some things that need to change? And, And the first question you should ask is how does the buyer view us? So if you can't answer that question, it's time you pick up the phone and call a couple of your customers and not ask questions like, so why are we so great? Why did you buy our product? But really say, what problems were you trying to solve when you started the buying process that led you to our company? Who else was involved in the buying process? What does your day to day role look like? What informa—what channels do you use to gather information on the market, about new products, on how to address your challenges and solutions? What are the obstacles you're experiencing and trying to do your job? If we can start today to make those changes and get into the heads of our buyer – We're going to understand what kind of content we should create. We're going to understand what type of programs we can create. We're going to learn the connectivity points between the different roles and how they all work together to make a process. And then we can also hopefully take a lot of that information and start to make better products out of it as well. So I would start there today. Engage with your buyer at a really detailed level and start to talk to them one-on-one.
1: Well, I think you made a very salient point there saying, you know, get in the head of your buyer. I think many, many um, organizations and, and, and individuals just don't get that. They're, they're too me-centric and not um, able to, to, you know, understand that. It's not about you. It's about them and the ability to call them and and actually empathize with them and say, oh, my God, I had no idea you were going through that. Now, let me think of that. I'll I'll get back to you in a couple of days and actually help them. Even if it's not going to make a sale, if you can help them and if everybody was doing that on a global level, that would tremendously change the way business is done.
0: And I believe that's part of the content that we have to use in demand generation. We have to help educate our customers. If I can be the organization that really helps my buyer think about their problem in a way that they might not have been aware of, if I can get them to understand and provide them some guidance <clears throat> on how to address this purchase, there's a high likelihood they're going to come back to me to purchase or at least include me in the short list because I was the one who helped them qualify and sometimes quantify their problem. And if I can be that person, if I can be that organization that does that, I'm going to have great success in my sales cycle more often than not.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, there's also going to be the uh, people bragging about how amazing you are to work with. And there's a well, geez, that sounds like a guy we would want to work with. And then on the other side of the coin, the people that are basically jerks and are just takers, uh, you'll be able to figure them out really quickly. And then you won't have to worry about them because that's a person not worth doing business with because they have no ethics.
0: Exactly right. You're exactly right, Bob.
1: We've been talking with Carlos. We've been talking with. We've been talking with Carlos Hidalgo today, and his book "Driving Demand: Transforming B 2 B Marketing to Meet the Needs of the Modern Buyer" is an awesome book. Actually, for anybody in a department, I would highly recommend CEOs uh, as well as CMOS read this. But people that are in a marketing department and want to do it right, and I would say, even if you've got a small business, there are some amazing tips and ideas in this so thank you for coming on the show carlos
0: bob thanks so much for having me it's been a pleasure thanks for listening to the show and don't forget to subscribe and rate us on itunes like us at facebook forward slash business book talk Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlick. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.